Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Yubaba's body double, Dagan Moriarty. <laughs> Are you calling me Zaniba? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. You're, yeah, like, you're right? the unknown triplet. Like, maybe perhaps. Can... perhaps there's an oh. unknown third sister. Well, you're a brother, and you don't have to be a of the same gender, I don't think, to no. be you know, a twin. You could be... There is a resemblance. There is a little bit of a resemblance, and you also have a, a fondness for ornate jewelry. I do. And other things of this nature, so... And you have the little Good weird call. hair and your and your short squat. <laughs> and I'm a powerful sorceress. Exactly. It's almost as if you are her indeed. <laughs> Dagan, how are you today? I'm doing good. Here we are on this Sunday. Indeed. Football Sunday. Football Sunday. Carl's football Sunday here in great. Santa Monica. Just another uplifting Jets game I just enjoyed. <laughs> they almost had it. Oh, yeah. They were real close. <laughs> were real it was close. close from the very beginning, I'll tell you. <laughs> Now, Dave, today's episode of Knockback is dedicated to a movie I'm really excited to talk to you about, something you wanted to put on your list, Spirited Away. And this is the Japanese animated film that came out in July of 2001. 
and is actually the highest grossing film in Japanese history, which I was surprised to read about to this day. Unbelievable. So the highest domestic Japanese box office gross is Spirited Away, followed by Titanic, by the way, number two. So I was surprised by that. One of the highest, I think, foreign grossing or foreign animated highest grossing films as well. And I had not seen this film, actually, until you brought the Blu-ray. When you put it on the list, I was a little bit worried because when we did, what did we do already? We already did another Ghibli. Ghibli. It's Ghibli, right? Or is it Ghibli? I go with Ghibli. I've heard both. But it could be both. Yeah, Supposedly it can be both. Yeah, Ghibli is fine with me. Yeah. Ghibli's fine with me, too. Probably go in between both of them. Stagger it. But nonetheless, we had done a previous film and I forgot that at that time, like it's just unbuyable. And so I needed you to, I either needed to go and get a hard copy of it, but you brought a Blu-ray. So I sat down and watched it just a couple nights ago. And so I'm interested to talk to you about it. It's fresh in my mind. And you did a lot of research and the, the audience always loves when you dive deep into animation. You just previously did this recently on Aladdin, of yes, course. Yes. And we're going to do some future episodes in the near future on DuckTales and some others once Disney Plus kind of gets going this fall. We'll yeah, have a lot of it'll be a lot access. easier then, right. for sure. So, oh yes, Dig, before we get into Spirited Away okay. and all of that, all of the nostalgia that comes with it, and all of the ethereal themes. <laughs> I like it. That we'll talk about. Oh, of course. I figure we'll go into our opening segment. All right. Take it away. Let's do it, my friend. So we're doing, Colin and I are doing our opening segment for Knockback Wave 10, our Mad Libs. Here's my Mad Lib book. See, guys, hear it? Hear the pages flapping? It's like an old Orson Welles, <laughs> you know, radio drama. It really you're is. like one of the sound guys. I always loved seeing, by the way, you ever see, a vi- I, I've seen some authentic videos, but also recreations as people do film or whatever, TV shows about that stuff where people are like standing in front of the mics. Yeah, with to like make a, the sound effects. With like a saw, <laughs> or sawing like a log or a something. A pair of shoes. It's pretty cool. Oh, it's so great. They have all the bells and everything like That's that. That's an interesting skill that that's, uh, oh, what, what did I just do? That's not necessary anymore. And I find wow. that quite riveting. It's sad, almost. It is a little sad. Well, there are people that make sound effects, I, I assume, well, for sure, for video games and animated oh, films that still do that. Guys. But the act of doing it live, like the, the pitter-patter of the shoes and stuff, is pretty neat. That must have been such a crazy skill to have. It's like being a chimney sweep. Like, there's not many of those anymore, I assume, right? I don't know. Do people still chimney sweep? They probably do. They ha- you have to. You have to keep it clean or you won't be able to have, you know, use your fireplace. Right. But it's like Oliver Twist. It's I think you're already made- as charming as... No. Mary Poppins. No, 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 no. You know, it's not as charming anymore. So let's do a Mad Lib. Okay, my friend. So now I got I to gotta confess, Carl, our last Mad Lib went off very well. Right. First one that was actually funny. In fact, it had us kind of in stitches. So I was like, do we just kind of stop it there? But you want to go out on a high note like George. Go, go out on a high note. Right. Don't jump the shark. Right. Of course. But let's, we might as well just keep well, going. Let's move on. Got a couple more. I mean, it was incredibly perverted. It really the was. one we did before. It really was. It was. Now, it's your choice. You, yep. could go, you could take that tact. You could take that route or you right. could go a different route now. I, mean, I think we're going to go with the same tact. I mean, I think you might as well when stick you, with it. when you play baseball and you go up to the plate and you realize that the pitcher is hanging his, his curveball, right? Yeah. And you hit it and he's still on the mound when you go back up again. You're waiting for that curveball. Don't change your approach. Right. Just hit it again. Yeah. Don't try to do anything crazy. Sit on, sit on that curve. Right. Exactly. I like it, my friend. I like it. I like your approach. All right, so I won't tell you the title of it till we're, till we're done. But this one's not too long. This one doesn't have too many blanks to fill in, so let's okay. start. All right. All right, let's start with an adjective and two plural nouns. An adjective and two plural nouns. Yeah. Uh, sexy. Okay. And plural nouns. Breasts. Okay. And breasts and 
Garter belts. Oh. What do you think of that? I see where your head's at, my friend. All right. Give me a silly word. A silly word. A silly word of some sort. Bombastic. Oh, that is a silly word. I like that word. That is a, a bit of a silly word, isn't it? It is. Type of liquid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. This could go in yeah, many different directions. Urine. Okay. I'm going to go with the the one that's the least worst the of the tame. ones that I thought about. The most tame. Give me one verb, one noun, and one adjective. One verb, one noun, and one adjective. Yeah. Humping. Okay. Noun. Noun. Bed. Okay. And then an adjective? Yes. Comfortable. Okay. Oh, well, that's an interesting one. That should make it interesting. Okay. I need a plural noun now. Plural noun. Hmm. Plural noun. Panties. <laughs> of course. <laughs> hey, you went with garter belt, so why not just... Yeah, just keep going. Keep going to the next step. A verb ending in I-N-G. A verb ending in I-N-G. Yeah. Mm, banging. Okay. <laughs> oh, give me one more of those. Another verb Another verb with, I-N-G, yeah. with an I-N-G. Okay. Yes. Mmm... Licking. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? And a number. Any number that you want. Uh, ten. Okay. And one noun and one plural noun. And one noun and one plural then noun. Then we're done. One noun and one plural noun. Let me think here. Hmm. One noun and one plural noun. Stripper pole. Okay. Got it. And then a plural noun. Give me a plural. Hmm. Plural noun. Money. <laughs> Money, okay. All right. Okay, so, Kyle, the title of our Mad Lib today is Spooky Stuff. Oh, jeez. Right in time for Halloween. Okay. American children are fascinated oh, no. by sexy stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I don't We're know. I already hate where this is going. <laughs> like We're going to get kicked off of the internet. <laughs> like stories. The FBI oh, is going to be all over this one. Good. This is actually a bad combination. You're right about this. All right. Start from the beginning. Start from okay, the beginning. Okay. All right. American children are fascinated by sexy stuff. Like stories that scare the breasts off of them. <laughs> Oh, no. That could have been worse, though. Or make their garter belts stand on end. Oh, dear. Scientists say this is because being frightened causes the bombastic gland to function and puts puts urine into their blood. That could have been worse, too. Yeah, that could have been been fucking horrifying. (laughs) And everyone knows that... That makes kids feel comfortable. Oh, wait. And everyone knows that makes kids feel comfortable. When they are scared by a movie or a bed, boys laugh and holler and humping. (laughs) And hump. And hump. (laughs) But girls cover their eyes with their... (laughs) Oh, no. Not good. (laughs) Oh, no. I apologize in advance. Also for a knockback episode about a children's movie. (laughs) Holy shit. But girls cover their eyes with their panties oh, and keep screaming and banging. <laughs> oh my god! We may have to edit this one. Most uh, kids get not. over this by the time they are ten years old. Then they like movies about cars. 
about cars licking or cops shooting money. Or if they are girls, they like movies about a boy meeting a stripper pole and falling in love. Of course, that can be scary, too. All right. Wasn't, wasn't we got out? Bad. We got out of there. It's actually appropriate for anime, if you think about it in that sense. Yeah, hentai specifically. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you for that Mad Lib, Dagan. Oh, thank you. Appreciate you. You did all the work. Well, I did some of it. <laughs> all right, Dagan. Let's talk about Spirited Away. All right. The 2003 Academy Award winner for Best Animated Feature. This movie was made on about a $20 million budget and made roughly $365 million in worldwide box office draw. And as I said, the most successful Japanese movie ever made, whether it's animated or live action, highest Japanese box office draw. And Dig, my major takeaway from watching this in the beginning, you and I watched about half of it together and then you went to do some other stuff and I watched the rest of it on my own. But yes. it when we did the previous Ghibli episode i had said that because i'm not except for mononoke kiki's delivery service and a couple others i'm not like wildly familiar with it like I, the only one i'm really really f- super familiar with as a movie is mononoke because yes. i've seen it many times of course you like that movie i really lot. love that movie a lot me too what's so funny about this to me and this is something we were talking about and i think it's a great place to begin our conversation is for 30 plus years i've been a really voracious consumer of Japanese video games and not only Japanese video games, but Japanese role playing games and stuff that is so obviously inspired by other cultural touchstones in Japanese culture. Sure. That was a bad sentence. That was like that was like what Austin Powers <laughs> says. Allow myself to introduce, introduce myself, <laughs> which is one of the great. How have we not done an Austin Powers episode? Uh, it's on the list. It's got I mean, it's on there. But nonetheless, what I really walked away from with this was like, wow, my love of Japanese video games is so isolated in a silo because I'm not really an anime person at all. I don't read manga or anything like that. I'm not really into it. I, I actually find most Japanese anime pretty strange. But then I'm realizing that I actually really love this stuff. I just love it through a specific lens. And this reminded me a lot of a video game, not only musically, which we'll talk about, but just in terms of the adventure going from step to step and encountering what you would look like as a bosses and I don't know. It just really reminded me of the many, many experiences I had with Japanese video games and how much I'm missing out on where they're getting their inspiration. Yeah, from. no, I, I, I like that. And I like that that's kind of your inroad to anime is bringing it through the thing that you're passionate about, which is video games and especially JRPGs. And I could see that, you know, especially with Ghibli stuff. It has that. It has a lot of those intonations. It has a light, really fantasy. high fantasy. It has a high production value that exceeds most JRPGs for sure. But it's kind of funny because I like Nino Kuni so much or really love that movie, which was a Ghibli jam with level five that. Yeah, I guess I'm a rare breed in that I just don't care about all this other stuff. I really love the video games, but I'm so overexposed to anime tropes and non tropes and just the style or whatever yeah. that it was. Just, it brought that to the fore for me. It was like, wow, I, I guess playing all these Tales games and Dragon Quests and all the stuff that I love so much, it's so anime-infused. How could you not also want to watch the films that are so inspirational to the game makers? Yeah, I see, I always felt that way, Kyle. We were talking about this a day or two ago, you and I, but I always knew a lot of people, believe it or not, that were, and a lot of you guys out there listening might be of this mind, too. Like, they're into video games, but they're not into anime, and I always wondered about that, especially the people that were into the more JRPG style video games like the final fantasies or the dragon quests and everything else so on that there's so many so on and so forth i always i always it was always odd to me that people weren't into both 
things. But I do know a lot of people that aren't. So it's just so it's just one of those things. It's interesting because I don't think that when I started to love JRPGs back in the early '90s, really when I started playing them for myself, that we we were playing in the eight and sixteen bit era where it wasn't really shining through. There was nothing really inherently Japanese about those games from a pixel art perspective or anything like that. That couldn't have been replicated by a mo- you know a modern American or European studio. So it wasn't really until the PS one era when there started to be like FMV. Uh, think about the Wild Arms intro sequence, which we're really in love with, or cutscenes and all that. Right, Final Fantasy VII has a lot of beautiful cutscenes when the game would break away, and now we're kind of back into making in-engine stuff again. That's like a real big deal, so the game doesn't cut away. But during that cutaway era, that's when I started to realize that there was a real synthesis there because we were getting, like Final Fantasy VI, for instance, or three as we knew it on SNES, was not in co- accompanied by Japanese style anime art. It was accompanied by a mono art, so there was nothing right. in that game at all. That was that felt like anime or felt like a Japanese style game. Apart from that, it's a JRPG, and so it's that style, that specific style that was just being made there. No, absolutely, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, you could you could take away little things. Now you were young, you were also really young, so you weren't exposed really to Eastern art and anime and manga too much at that point, except for what you saw through me. But you were again, you were really little, but you could see if you were familiar with like chibi art, you know, super deformed, colored hair you know, like wildly colored hair, that would really be your only takeaway that there was a Japanese or Eastern flavor in those things. You're right. Before you had, you know, in, you know, full blown anime art with cutscenes and FMV. Right. It was just the, it was just that like introduction that happened later. They stitched it on for me, but it was always, always this inherent part of it. I just wasn't familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. So I think I just might've missed the boat there. And, And there's still some stuff that's peculiar in my taste today that people question no question or take umbrage with but just find curious like i'm a really huge danganronpa fan which is so anime and so japanese but it's such an isolated thing that i love like i'm not into really many other graphic novels or any of that kind of stuff which is so big especially on vita so there is a little bit of a peculiarity how there did you me. get into that well i what was friendly with the guys at nis and nis is nippon ichi software okay they make that game and publish that game and others. Well, I think Spike actually made that game, but they published it. Anyway, the they would send everything to IGN and they really liked me because I would pay attention to them. It was hard for them to get attention from others. And I liked at IGN exposing people to games that they would have otherwise never heard yeah, of. Yeah, that's cool. And Danganronpa was just one of those games. I never played anything like it. So I never really played a graphic novel and I loved Monokuma, who's the, the teddy bear that's sitting on my shelf right next to you. And yeah. so... It was just a, it's a really bizarre, really violent, really mysterious and very Japanese game that I just liked in isolation. And in just kind of venturing out a little bit from there, I found that nothing was really of the same quality. So I just was like, it's just this thing that I like I, because cool. I find it weird when people are like, I like Japanese games. Like typically I'm like, well, do you really or do you just like some Japanese games? And right. It would because it's the same as me saying I like American games. It doesn't make any sense. What's an American game? It doesn't even have a definition anymore. There are great shooters coming out of Europe and great shooters coming out of even Asia, but you would consider that that's an American created genre. And there are great role playing games coming out of America and Canada and Europe, especially Eastern Europe right now that were so clearly inspired by not only D&D, but the Japanese role playing games coming out. So I always found it really weird that we talk about Japan, Japanese games, Japanese anime. It's like, so you know, broad, but it is. But it is also a specific thing. So, Dig, tell me a little bit about Spirited Away how you were familiarized with it and, okay. and what your takeaway is, because a lot of people consider this one of the great animated films of all time. And I will throw out there. I don't know that I agree. So oh, okay. I, I, I can't it, wait to yeah, break it down with you. That I, way. I'd like to talk to you about it in a really deep way. So let's 
start with your introduction to this film and what it's about. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. So, yeah, one of my, this is, it's a really special film to me, Spirit Away, because it's in my top, I really had to break it down. I, I like going through this once in a while, kind of going in, going back in and sort of assessing, you know, my favor of certain things. But I love Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbor Totoro, and this film. And Spirited Away are my top four Ghibli films. And Spirited Away is also probably very easily in my top 10 animated feature films of all time as well. Just in general. You know, talking about Pixar, other anime, Disney, all lumped in. Spirited Away is in my top 10 animated films of all time. It's it's a gorgeous piece. It means a lot to me from a visual standpoint because it's absolutely beautiful. And we'll get into that. But also... It came at a, you know, a time for me, which was really interesting because I was already, uh, you know, in animation school, just starting my career as an animator when this movie went into production and wasn't, you know, was really like a, like a fledgling animator when this movie came out. And there's so many ways to talk about this movie, realizing that it was only in production, I think, for a little more than two years, which is astounding from start to finish. And that... I was already not only a big anime fan up to this point, but I was already really entrenched in Studio Ghibli at this point and was already a really big fan. So this is one of the first movies that, besides Princess Mononoke, which which came just before this one, it was Miyazaki's film. You know, of course, we should we should say, we should remind people that may not know, Studio Ghibli in Japan, there's two primary directors who are contemporaries but also rivals in the studio, and that's Hayao Miyazaki and Nisiao Takahata and they those two directors sort of helm their films and they tend to Studio Ghibli tends to stagger them so Miyazaki will release a feature and then Takahata's feature will release and so on and so forth and that pattern will repeat and usually they'll be you know they'll have if they could afford it they'll have two movies in production at the same time so they'll have Takahata's piece and Miyazaki's piece and they'll stagger them so I was already, I've always been a huge fan of Miyazaki, obviously, and I was a huge fan, like you were, Kyle, of Princess Mononoke. So I was really looking forward to their next feature, but we were very sad. Anime fans and animation fans were really sad because after Princess Mononoke, Hayao Miyazaki essentially retired. He was, you know, he was having, he was suffering, you know, he was getting old. He was becoming an old man. He was becoming elderly, and he was, he wasn't able to keep up with the pace of, you know, that excruciating pace of, you know, producing animated content. And he knew that. And although there were whisperings of his retirement all through the 90s, especially the mid-90s, he said people knew, you know, he was pretty vocal about admitting that he was going to be retired after Princess Mononoke. And then he realized he got excited about a couple of other projects and sort of said, I'm going to come out of retirement and do them. And he had a project, actually, that was like a passion project of his. I always forget the name of it. I have it written down here. Yeah, he had a passion project that he was developing called Rin and the Chimney Painter, who was about, you know, suppose I don't know too much about it, but it was supposedly about an older heroine character. And they realized that they needed to do something. I guess they felt like Toshio Suzuki, who we don't get to talk about a lot. He's the primary producer. He's the big guy at Studio Ghibli, and he's the producer. And he realized that he wanted Miyazaki to come back and do a feature that was really important to them. But he realized that this vehicle might not be the best, and they wanted to do something that was based on a younger character. So that's how they came up with Princess Mononoke, and 
<laughs> it's so funny because Hayao Miyazaki came out of retirement, and then not only did he come out of retirement just to work on the film, you would think maybe he would you know go at a more leisurely pace or whatever. He storyboarded the entire film without a script, and that's what they went off of for this movie. And I think what makes this movie stand out, even in the pantheon of Ghibli films, is that that whimsy and that sense of wonder and that sort of dreamlike and sort of nightmarish and it's really a whimsical film. It's much it's much different than the body of work, especially up to this point. And I love that. I love starting to talk about it from that point that this was a movie without a script that was just completely storyboarded by one man, one cohesive vision. And sort of the whimsy and the beauty that came out of that. And I think that's what makes it so special. You can tell that it doesn't have a script. Like when you told me that. It's weird. Uh, because uh, I, I feel like when I watch some of these films, and I feel like this with other Ghibli films too, but especially this one, that's so steeped in a specific Japanese experience and also Japanese cultural touchstones that we're simply not familiar with or not ingratiated with, whether Shinto and, and Shinto lore of course, Shinto being a very uniquely Japanese religion. And of course, Buddhism as well, which is not unique to J Japan, but of course, very influential on Japan. And so not being fam super familiar with those touchstones and the various creatures and lore and mysteries that involve that and, and what children might grow up with. We don't really have that kind because Shinto is such a more spiritual, spiritual religion than like a top down religion in a lot of ways. It's not like Roman Catholicism where... There's like relics and tradition and stuff like that, where you like take the host and you sit and you kneel and you stand and smoke. And it's like, all right. Right. I'm sure Shinto has all of those kinds of things. I, I actually wanted to go to a Shinto temple one of my times in Japan, but I have tattoos. And so I'm not allowed actually in. Oh, wow. And so and I could have covered them, but I felt like it would have been disrespectful for me to basically lie. Yeah, that was cool. That you did so that. I didn't go. That's cool. When, when other guys were going. And so I just feel like there's a lot of that stuff in this in this movie specifically where I'm like, I don't really know what the fuck is going on here. And I found the movie, it, the movie's beautiful to look at. It's very fun. That's why I was thinking about it as a video game because it just felt like beat to beat. Like this is there's even shots where I'm like, there's a specific shot when she when the heroine walks up to the town outside of the bathhouse or whatever, the spirit town or whatever. Yeah. And there's like a path going to the left and a path going forward. There's a house on the hill and some other stuff. And I'm like, this looks like a third person action RPG when you're walking into a town for the first time and you have a few different ways. I love that takeaway. I love it. And so I was trying to keep my mind involved in it and that. And of course, enjoy, enjoying what would be undoubtedly an unrivaled aesthetic that is wonderfully executed and really beautiful. But as far as storytelling is concerned, I just didn't even understand what they were even trying to say and what the point of the film was. And we can get into that later, even though I really enjoyed some of the characters and certainly some of the designs of the characters. And I love these cute little girls that he seems to design, right? Yeah. I think she's supposed to be 10 years old in this or 12. Yes, she's 10. There's just something really cool about that because as a male, we aren't a dominant force in a, in a lot of animation, actually. When you think about... Disney films, for instance, we just did one on Aladdin. We'll do one on, I'm sure, on The Little Mermaid in the future. But you think about Pocahontas and all those kinds of things. A lot of these films, even early, certainly early Disney films, a lot of them are focused around women It's not or girls. It's not necessarily an uncommon thing. But I like that perspective because it's a for like it, it seems so foreign, the Japanese girl experience, right? I'm like, I don't know. That can be any further from what I know. Right. So I like that. I, I enjoyed that. But I don't really know what the film's about. And... 
even reading a little bit about it later and I understand some of the, the characters now a little bit better, but I'm still like, I don't really know what this is about. And yeah. I do like that the ending to me seems really vague, which is fun to interpret as well. Yeah, no, absolutely, Kyle. I, I will say that this this movie takes multiple viewings to sort of digest and to fully understand. And also, I've, I'm such a voracious reader of animation and production and behind the scenes and everything that that I'm sure aided me through the years and trying to understand this film, at least from me as at least from the creator's standpoint. But this movie, you know, we we could break it down and talk about, you know, it's, it's really inspired. The character of Chihiro slash Sen is really inspired by one of Hayao Miyazaki's dear friend's daughters. So essentially like a niece, that was really the influence and the inspiration for the story. And it's really, I always saw it as a tale of growing up. If you just look at, Chihiro, you know, slash Sen, looking at her from the beginning of the film, what's going on in her attitude to what, ha- what you know, the events that transpire, her challenges that she has to overcome and sort of becoming from, you know, going from, and we'll get much, more, much deeper into this, but going from what is essentially a pretty bratty kid with a bad attitude that doesn't know how to embrace a new challenge and moving to a new place. She's not equipped for it at all. She's a spoiled only child, basically. And seeing her personal growth when she's finally confronted with a challenge and she has to rise to the occasion. And so she goes from that bratty kid to that young lady, to that polite young lady who's equipped to deal with personal challenges and learns what it is to be selfless and not be selfish and that whole thing. And I I love that, but I also love the whimsy of this film and that, that effect, you know, the fact that it is very dreamlike. It sort of meanders, it's, and the, the imagery is very dreamlike and sometimes nightmarish. And it has some of the most gorgeous detail and animation, but it also, for me, leaves the most lingering, lingering and memorable imagery of any of the Ghibli films. You know, it's really a, really a beautiful tapestry of, it's, beautiful, it's a beautiful tapestry, but it's odd. It's also odd. Yeah, and that's li- a good way to put it. I like that. It is odd. In fact, Christian Doolin wrote into us, and remember- Hey, Christian. You can write into us by supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. That allows you to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show. And also get early ad-free access to our show if you like what we do. He says, Spirited Away, don't you just love that title? I am ready. I am in there from the very beginning to the very end. I am willingly going on this fantastic journey. The way the movie flows and how it, it feels as you are lifted and carried along through the weirdness, it's special. I love it. I, I agree with him there in the sense that the, the name of the film is perfect. I don't know exactly how it would be translated back into Japanese, if that's what it literally means. I think I know what it is. I'll I'll look it up for you. But I I do agree. The the name is perfect. Spirited Away is a really appropriate title to it. And I think lends a lot to that, that, that you're unable to grasp it. It's, it's ethereal. It's weird. Yeah. And so I think that the title is quite appropriate. And And it has a double meaning. Indeed, you know, which I which I only realized recently, really, that, you know, spirited away, you're dealing with the spirit world and all of that stuff also. But you're also dealing with spiriting this young girl away from her world into a world, you know, into a whole new place that's going to encompass, you know, embracing all new challenges, which I always thought was actually, you know, Sen, I mean, Sen is swept up. Her life is, is completely 180. And I think, you know, the title, the t- title is really clever. I like that. I really like that. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Kyle Tisdell wrote in for what we're talking about as well. He says, what do you guys think the movie is about? And we talked a little bit about some of the themes, but he says, what is it trying to say? I think the movie is wonderful and weird and very Studio Ghibli, but I think Miyazaki has a tendency to throw so many weird ideas at you (laughs) that the point of the film gets drowned out. I love Spirited Away and I can tell you all about the monsters and the giant baby or whatever, but I can't even begin to tell you what the movie is about. I'm more fond of some of the other films like Howl's Moving Castle and Castle in the Sky because I think that the theme of the movie manages to show itself even in the midst of the weirdness. Do you think the movie is maybe too strange for its own good? Yeah. What do you think about that? Because there is definitely, I think, a cultural divide when you consider that this movie is the highest grossing film in Japanese history. So it clearly resonated with a Japanese audience who really culturally and natively understands it. Yes. But So it doesn't seem like that's a problem, a suffering problem for the film to its native audience. But I actually do think the movie is too strange for its own good. And I don't like the idea of someone making a movie off of storyboards and stuff. I think that's strange. So we've gotten a little bit into what you think it's about in terms of themes. But do you think that the themes are a little too weird to resonate forward? Yeah. And you know what? They were really worried about that. Toshio Suzuki, again, the producer, was really worried about how it would translate, how the film would translate to Western audiences. And also to take a little bit of a sidetrack here, what's really interesting about this film is that they were very honest in publicity and in the the various things that you read, which I just recently found out about. You got to remember, too, in a historical context from the mid to late 90s, Princess Mononoke, their film, Princess Mononoke, was the highest grossing film in Japan when it came out. And, you know, people, it it did, it did astoundingly. It, It went, you know, bonkers at the box office and made a lot of money and became very popular so apparently when Toshio Suzuki was on vacation somewhere he was somewhere like in Alaska or something he ran into a colleague who I think also worked in the anime industry he wasn't a Ghibli guy but he worked in anime or publishing he worked in Japanese media and they met you know by chance basically in Alaska when they were both on vacation and they said let's go have some tea and Toshio Suzuki said we're gonna we're trying to work on a new thing to Miyazaki-san's next film and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do and this guy or could have been a woman actually said to Toshio Suzuki well I'm sure it'll do half as good as Princess Mononoke and Toshio Suzuki took that as a great personal affront and a great personal challenge that 
In other words, the he realized the sense was that they almost got lucky with Princess Mononoke and they would never be able to duplicate that type of success. So when they went into, which is weird to hear that they had a bent on success because you know, you look at a place like Studio Ghibli, they're meant, they're always out for, and they're known for creating artful things. They're not, you know, it's a very artsy fartsy outlook and philosophy. They, they never talk about how much money, you know, obviously they're very successful, especially with merchandising, but they never, you never hear them that their bread and butter, what they're out for is to make a lot of money. So the fact that they were after that, they were after success with this film is, is really telling. And it meant a lot to them. And it meant a lot to the people, the powers that be. And also Disney, which I recently read, put 10% of the production budget into this film because they had recently garnered the agreement to distribute all of Ghibli's films in North America. So as a, as a trade-off, as a token, Disney said, well, well, we know what you have in production. You know, basically buoyed by John Lasseter said whatever they're going to do just give them 10% for their next film and they did so now Disney was involved so there was a lot at stake with this film and they were worried especially after having such a odd thing without a script and that it was going to be completely storyboarded and how weird that was how this would you know much of this very eastern stuff would translate into western culture and how Western audiences would receive it. Now, they received it very well. Critically, at the box office, everyone loved it. Animation people, everyone everyone dug it. But what was interesting about that, really, Kyle, was that they, they had no idea how it was going to go. And I will say, for those people who are confused by the movie, I think you have to see it a few times. You have to definitely see it a few times. And if you just look at it from, a, you know, that's really what helped me was to realize that in fact, I wrote something that might help you guys actually understand the film a little better. And I, I think it goes for me from beyond just what I'm gleaning. I think this is just from doing so much research and knowing you know, exactly what Miyazaki was also intending. That it's the story of a 10-year-old girl, modern-day Japan, obviously, who's moving to a new place with her two parents. We know that. And as we open the film, we see Chihiro's attitude. You have to pay attention to that. She's I always took away that Chihiro was sort of a spoiled only child, very used to getting her way. We know she's complaining in the back of the car. Her attitude she's, she doesn't have a very embracing or positive attitude. She's being very negative about what she has to do, a new town, a new school. She's even saying, you know, her mom's even saying, you know, she's complaining about her flowers dying and then her mom was like, you know, I can't believe this. this is the first time I ever got flowers and they're already dying. And her mom's like, Daddy got you a rose for your birthday. And she's like, yeah, one measly rose. It wasn't a bouquet of roses. Like, so, you know, she's already this bratty girl with sort of a bad attitude. Typical, not a bad kid, just a typical 10 year old that's just spoiled. You know, she's waited on hand and foot. And you you could you could sense if you read into it that she this is a kid who's never had to embrace any sort of challenge in her life. So when she's thrust into this situation and this odd new world, and she has to rise to the occasion. That's what I always got out of it. And with the help of, you know, various friends she meets, but also just by embracing the negativity, by embracing a challenge, how she grows as a as a kid. And it's so funny to look at Sen slash Chihiro from the beginning of the movie to the end, because she's a completely different character. She even looks a little different. She even looks a little older, the way she moves and the way she acts and her her little nuances and her facial expressions and so forth. I'm surprised you didn't bring up, and maybe it's just my interpretation of it, but also the parents don't seem like good parents. There's yes. a lot of, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty obvious, actually, but 
the dad and the mom, the dad's very gruff. The mom is very dismissive and they're the ones that really get her in the, the situation. So that's a really ironic and interesting part of it, too, is that she's thrust into the situation that she's not really prepared for, ill prepared for alone. But it's really her parents fault. And then she's really the totally. one trying to rescue her parents. They, they, they're turning the pigs, basically, in this in this story. So I always found that interesting as well, or not always, but in, in watching the film for the first time, I, I that stuck with me because when we do when we think about a lot of anime or anime I've seen either other Ghibli anime that has parents involved they're usually like good parents or solid parents or interesting parents or whatever these these parents seem very I don't know I guess it maybe it's my own stereotype that you don't even that Japanese society is so organized and so hollowed in a way of respecting your elders and all that kind of stuff that you don't expect to see a scene like that or whatever. It just goes to show you my own ignorance on the realities of the Japanese experience. Yeah. That, yeah, there are shitty fat parent dads out there and yeah. dismissive moms. And dismissive is a great word. You could even see they're very, her parents in the beginning of the film are very even keeled. They don't get too emotional. They don't get too high or they don't get too low. It almost seems half like they can't, not that they're necessarily bad parents, but that they can't be bothered. They don't, they're not going to expend too much energy, whether their daughter's upset or whether she's happy. It doesn't matter. They're just going to kind of placate her. And I think that it, I think there is a big comment on parenting, parenting with that. And also later on in the movie with a character that we'll meet that is a comment, I think, on overprotective parenting. When, when we meet later on, when we meet the witch, when we meet the sorceress and she has her little son, Bo. And he says, like, you know, I'm not allowed out of here. You'll get sick if you leave here. And she's, he's overcoddled in this real this nursery that's filled with like toys and stuffed animals. It's like a padded room. Pillows. You know, it's a, yeah. yeah. So th- there's a big comment on that. And you could see Miyazaki commenting on stuff like that. He's very opinionated. I mean, I think there's also messages about greed, about the environment. I think this is laden with a lot. But I think, as one of our listeners already stated, I think it's sort of overladen with stuff. You know, and that makes it that could make it feel confusing, I think. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely a little confusing to me. I'm not the smartest person in the world. I, I don't I don't often <laughs> see the nuance in that. things one or two times after seeing it one or two times. So like Dagan said, it's, it's maybe worth seeing it multiple times. But yeah, that was a big takeaway for me. But I'm I was interested in Lasseter's involvement and Disney's involvement in this, too, because I was surprised that to read that Disney didn't invest their money in this in order to secure the publishing rights in the West. They did it to secure the first right of refusal, which is totally different and actually shows a complete lack of confidence in what the end product would be, which I, maybe you interpret it differently, but no, in no, other words, they true. were, they did give 10% of the money back, but they didn't even say like, we will publish it in the West. We'll do the voice acting. That wasn't part of the agreement. The agreement was like, you can, you have to, we have to have, first right of refusal. So people that don't know, it's basically saying like Disney must be offered the right to distribute this in the West before anyone else has. That's all they paid for. So they didn't even pay. They didn't pay for the specific publishing rights, which I was so surprised about because you would assume that if you invested a few million dollars, which is all their investment was into this movie, right. that you'd at least want to be like, yeah, of course, we'll just distribute it when it comes out. Even if it sucks, we'll make some of our money back. They, right, that exactly. wasn't the agreement. So I thought that that was kind of cautious and interesting. That is odd, especially because they had Ghibli had other suitors. Now, I couldn't in investigating that I couldn't find out who those other, you know, those other people that were trying to court Studio Ghibli and trying to go after them for the distribution rights, not just in North America, but in other countries. You could assume 
it was the other big media companies at, of that time. I'm sure DreamWorks had a hand in that. Fox, the other the other media companies had a hand in sort of trying to court Disney and trying to maintain that or trying to obtain the distribution rights. But that was, you know what that was, Kyle? That was John Lasseter, who was their chief, who was Disney's chief creative even during that time, sort of wrestling with the executives. The only reason they made any sort of interest in Ghibli was because of John Lasseter's pushing for that. And he had enough power even as a creative to instill some sort of hope in the executives but they were you know they were sort of approaching it in a much more cautious way but that's the only reason that that they even got involved was because of Lassiter's prodding although you know as you say they were being very cautious up to that point but after the success of Spirited Away it was uncontestable yeah, I, you must look like you must have the big swinging dick, right? When you walk in, that, I, I always think about that. I'm not even trying to be facetious. Yeah. When you make a call so good, right? So powerful monetarily, which is the, the bottom line of every business. And you take a huge risk and your career might ride on it. And it might be just a small write off for a mega corporation like Disney. But that could really ruin you as a person. And you have to have a big swinging dick after something like that. I always think about that. I've never been in a position where I've made really great professional calls in my life, but I've never been in a position where it's like you walk before a board yeah. at a mega international corporation, get them to do what you want, have to wait it out to see if it worked or not. And then it works. I always I always love those gambits. Absolutely. That you hear about in the you corporate world. You put yourself world. on the line. It's very interesting. Yeah. And it shows a lot of I mean, my I mean, you know this because you've been in the corporate world far longer than I've been. And I bailed out of the corporate world after seven years and we'll never go back to it. I'll be, I'll be fucking poor on the street before I ever go back to the corporate world. But there are a lot of fake people in that world and people that think they know what they're talking about and have just a lot of confidence through failure where you wonder how these people are even in a position to make decisions. And then you encounter the exact opposite, which are people that when they say something, it has a lot of weight and it actually works out and you kind of have to wait it out. But it, but they're proven right. And I've encountered both of those kinds of people many times in my own career. And so it's just cool to hear those kinds of stories. Not that I'm necessarily pulling for John Lasseter. I don't know from him from a hole in the wall. Actually, I only know him more recently for his trials and tribulations. And but, leaving Disney. <laughs> right. And leaving Disney. And I think he's at another company now. He is. He is. And there was some problem with that with some people. But I think that's where he is. So. Yeah, I, it's it's a cool to, see, to to hear that, but it's it's interesting to see about Disney's. Just, what what a different Disney that's trepidatious about that. I mean, think about the Disney now that's just over invested to the point of like monopolization of all of these different parts of culture and entertainment. It's true. It's just a, it's not a reserved Disney anymore. You would assume that today's Disney would have just given them the entire budget for the movie and made a cinematic universe out of spirited away. Yeah. And that without having to do the creative work. Now, Dig, let's get into that. We haven't really talked specifically about the characters and the actual story itself. Before we do that, I guess I'll set the stage that these parents, as we said, the parents and the little girl are, uh, you know, Chihiro later known as Sen and the parents are named Akio and Yuko. They were driving to their new home and they kind of look for a, side like a side road or a shortcut and they end up at this tunnel they get out of the car and go explore this tunnel it's very strange and they find themselves in this like i said this jrpg village basically <laughs> one thing i brought up at that point which i thought was interesting and i don't know if you have any further insight into it is i was really fascinated that the car they were driving was an audi yes this seemed very weird you're not allowed to do that without permission that's a that's an that's a trademarked 
that's a trademark and that's a logo, a, a recognizable logo. You can just put that in your product. So do you know anything further about that? Because that that's weird to me. Audi must have given them permission to do that. That's not something you could just have done. Yeah. Well, Miyazaki, we were talking about a little bit about this car. Miyazaki's a huge car guy. He's a he's a car nut. Even back from his content in the 80s with, you know, directing the Castle of Cog- Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cogliostro and stuff. He's really he always, if you really look at his films, there's always something about cars. He has a car obsession. He's a real car nut. So I guess Audi did put their endorsement into the film. Now, I know the inclusion of having a western car, you know not a western car necessarily but a european car a luxury car it was, it's an a, it's a first generation audi a4 was not only for the practical things of having all wheel drive and driving through the forest road and everything but was also to show that sort of a western styled family with two maybe aloof parents with a spoiled kid that have the luxury car it was almost to show a more western styled family dynamic and that was a very purposeful thing to include an audi rather than even a lexus or something where it would be a japanese modeled car so that was a very i think that was part of that i always got that as part of that and of course everybody talks about the very realistic things with the anti-lock brakes and the way the brake the brake pedal shimmies when they stop at the tunnel and stuff it's really all those little accuracies the way the wheels bounce because that audi model you know the the, uh, quattro all-wheel drive does act like that Everything down to like the dual exhaust is like very intricately and lovingly put in there. But I know a part of that was that Miyazaki was trying to show a more Western styled family. And you could see that even in the parents' clothes, you know, the dad's shirt, the all the loot in the back, you know, Shiro's got all her stuff. So I think that was a that was a purposeful thing too. I never found out if Audi actually endorsed it. Now Audi, I know from just from being a little bit of a car guy that Audi Porsche, you know, Volkswagen owns Audi, Volkswagen owns Porsche, and now Volkswagen owns Lamborghini as well. And I know notoriously that it's very hard to get an endorsement out of them, which is why, for instance, Bumblebee wasn't an old VW bug in the Transformers, the live action Transformers movies that started to come out in the 2000s. They're very slow to put their endorsement on something. So they must have, they had, and no one would dare cross Volkswagen so I they had to have Audi had to have given their consent for that very they interesting had to have it's very interesting little hang up I had in the beginning <laughs> now we're introduced to this this mysterious world and I wonder we should talk about some of the characters and the spirits and all the different things that we all the different kind of characters that we encounter Absolutely. but tell me a little bit about the story about how once the parents and once uh, Chihiro find their way to this to the kind of the outside of this and they kind of get sucked into it through their own actions. Let's talk a little bit about the story from there. Okay, so so they go through this odd tunnel and they come out on the other side. The dad's actually kind of funny because he's like, this isn't old, this is just made of plaster. It's made to look old. They go through this, they go through the tunnel, arrive at the other side to this, you know, grass plains. And it looks like what the dad's saying is, oh, this is an abandoned amusement park. They built a bunch of these in the 90s and then when it went out of business when the bubble burst or whatever. So they think they find this abandoned amusement park and they think it's cool and they're exploring. And then the parents find whatever this, uh, this seemingly abandoned food stand with all this delicious, still steaming and hot fried and broiled food. And they sit down to eat. And Chihiro's very nervous about that. She's like, no, I think we should go. This is weird. And, you know, again, that whole Western sort of spoiled sensibility was like, don't worry, we're going to pay. Daddy's got cash and credit cards, you know, that whole thing. And then the parents eat themselves into 
you know, the parents basically eat themselves into oblivion. And Sen's left, Shahiro's left on her own to in this in this strange place. And we'll take it from there. But I'm mystified by this because what is the setup? This is what I was a little confused about. Like, what is the why was is that food a trap? Was it that's what it seems like. To yeah. Me. I, I and and if it was it's like so they're trying is that how they acquire new livestock or something like that? That's what I was curious and about. And it's never explained, really. Right. You could sort of intimate and sort of solve the riddle of it, you know, look for clues. But yeah, that that's sort of a trap. Are, they, are you going to partake on this feast that you weren't invited to and be a rude human being? If so, then we're going to, you know, then you're going to turn into a pig and you're going to be trapped here. That's what I always took of it. It's not, it's true. It doesn't hit you, it, it far from hit you over the head with any kind of intent or meaning. You got to read into it. It's it's a little weird from that perspective in a good way, yeah. Because I didn't I didn't really know. I'm like, so why is this food here? They, is it just like the spiritual pre- like thing in perpetuity where they're hoping people come through and that's how they acquire their pig human creatures that they keep or whatever? And is that what they're is that what they're feeding people? Yeah, exactly. They're, well, it's they are dark. feeding they are feeding people the pigs you for see sure. The stables, yes, and they do say. I mean, I think. At some point, Yubaba says, like, turn them into bacon and ham or something right, like that. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so they're fat enough or something like that. And yeah, so it's a little, like, are they cannibals, basically? It's it's a little it's a little strange from that perspective also because it's like, why don't you just go buy pigs? But <laughs> And you don't know. This is the other weird thing that kind of struck me recently watching the film. You don't know. You could sort of gather that everything there, every creature and every sort of life form and everything are all spirits, but we don't know that. You know, is the boiler man a spirit? You know, what's a spirit? What's not a spirit? What's a living creature? What's a spirit? That's another thing that's kind of strange and that is not really fully explained. And also, if Chihiro would have partaken in the feast, would she have turned into a pig? You know, is is would it trap children as well? So right. It's pre- it's pretty dark, actually. It is. It's there's a lot of unknowns. We'll talk about the darkness in a little while because a lot of people did write into to to us about that. So they're caught. They're spirited away into this particular world where they work at a Japanese, or she works now, or she's trying to get work according to the advice of a couple of people she had met. Again, we don't know if they're really people or not to try to get work at this bathhouse that serves spirits, which I think is a really cool idea. I actually think that that's a really neat idea. It's yeah, run it's by fun. this Super really fun. great character, Yubaba, who I think is the coolest character, the greatest character design. I love when she turns into like the bird. She's so good. And I love that there's like weird touches when she turns into like the raven or whatever she turns into where she has like a, a, a raven that actually goes with her. Yes. And stuff like that, like a companion. Yeah. And I love that one shot. The one shot of her at the beginning when she's flying around looking for Chihiro. It reminded me like it was scary looking. It reminded me of the feeling I get watching Attack on Titan, actually, when you see the Titans where it's like, wow, this is unholy as shit. It's haunting. Yeah. And it's not quite as unholy as that. The shit that's going on in Attack on Titan, which really disturbs me. Like yeah. that, that shit actually gives me like anxiety. Watching that's it. really interesting that you bring up Attack on Titan, mm-hmm. Cobb, because I think there's a really big European influence to some of the design in Attack on Titan and a, a lot of European fairy tale design in this movie and later on when we get to their next film in Howl's Moving Castle. There's a lot. It seemed like Miyazaki was going through a stage where he was really inspired by European. And I would say, in, in fact, Russian fairy tales. That it's very Yubaba is very much of that design of like a Russian witch or a Russian sorceress. Right. Like she's a Cossack or something like that. 
you could definitely definitely see that with the stylings and you still what I, I follow the National Geographic Instagram account and there's always really great pictures from all over the world and a lot of scenery and geology and animals and stuff but they do do a lot of cultural stuff in like faraway lands that are still untouched yeah by lots of, and they and they do a lot of stuff on in National Geographic in Siberia where these kind of mystics or whatever live and live on off the land and live as if it's you know pre Zar or Tsarist Russia basically still which you know ended a hundred years ago so wow it, it is pretty cool because it's funny you say that because I can see that too even in the jewelry she wears I love the rings and I, I was paying a lot of attention in the design like in the persistence of the design to make sure that the rings were always on the right fingers and stuff like that I was trying to pay attention to it's that it's pretty good and, right? and it's good yeah they do because I know that you say you get frustrated when people go off model and they were really obviously I mean that's something that I'm sure that they would catch with a movie of this sophistication but I do love the design of her and I'm a little confused about what her end goal is. She runs this mysterious. First of all, there's like a city in the distance or some lights. It's like when you like see an when you see a movie, a sci fi movie, and there's like an alien ship or an alien planet and you see like lights in the distance. And then it's like, oh, there's some sort of civilization that's there. Right. Like they can see other shit going on in this mysterious ghost train almost going back and forth to these different locations. Yeah. I don't really understand exactly what the nature of the commerce is in a weird way. I don't know if it's really that important with what you Bob is doing. Do you have any insight into that? Like she's welcoming spirits in taking whatever they give and have these weird, this like weird staff of people working for in order yeah. to serve the spirits. I, I, I guess I just didn't really understand like what the point of that was. The only thing I can really think of what I always thought was they're trapping spirits there in order to, in order, you know, it's Yubaba's bathhouse. She owns it and she runs it. And she's a powerful, powerful sorceress. So you think a lot of this, whatever's going on here, the, this vehicle, her whole setup, this whole trap, everything about it is hers and her doing that she's actually trapping people to become spirits to either be employed for her, to work for her, or to, or maybe they become customers, you know, they become inhabitants of this land, thereby becoming customers for her business. That's the only thing I could really think of. That's what makes the most sense to me. Right, because she seems motivated to to serve the customer when the stink spirit or whatever they call it comes, which is so <laughs> awesome, and, and it ends up being like a polluted like river or lake or whatever. Yeah. I liked that because she like insisted that it still come in and no one really wanted to deal with it because I, I assume that they just wanted the business and there's something obviously very valuable that they can get out of this if they just do what they need to do. And but it makes it just seems like that she has like a bunch of. Uh, yeah, I guess they are they voluntary employees? Are they slaves? Are they indentured servants or serfs of some sort? That's the thing that was a little confusing to me. And then the different caste systems or types of creatures they're not quite human they know Chihiro's human because she smells differently than them right I like the line from Lynn when she says well like she won't smell like us after a few days of eating our food and well she won't smell like a human after eating our food and stuff like that which is true I think people do smell differently depending on the food they eat so that's an interesting uh, point but yeah I was a little confused about the nature of like well what is going I guess it's really maybe not even that important because it's really about Chihiro getting out of this place I suppose but yeah I had a lot of questions. No, it's, it leaves you with a lot of questions. It's really, it doesn't explain a lot. It gives you a lot to think about, but it doesn't explain a lot. And I don't, you know, you, you do have to wonder if that's on purpose or if that's, you know, just wasn't important to Miyazaki and creating the film. Maybe the visuals are more important or the overarching idea or whatever. You know, was he leaving holes on purpose? Was he purposely making it 
leaving those questions for us to ask. It's a, that's always a that's always a big thing. It's good to interpret stuff too. I, I to leave things open to interpretation and to not have all the answers as well. I think right. is, is certainly interesting. I really love the character of Kamaji. I think I'm saying that right. The old yeah. man with multiple arms that's kind of in charge of the heating systems for the baths. Tell me a little bit about him because he seems to me the most dynamically animated character in. Oh yeah, he's beautiful. In the movie, almost seems to be like a showcase character in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So Kamaji is sort of the six-armed, we think he's a spirit, who's in charge of heating the boiler for the bathhouse. And he's assisted, he sort of works in there, making sure that there's heat for the baths of this giant spirit bathhouse. And he is assisted by hundreds of these tiny, adorable little soot sprites who carry coal to the furnaces for him. And yeah, he's so cool. He just sits there on his perch drinking his tea and smoking his cigarettes and he just uses his six arms to you know basically run the baths and when they call down for certain minerals or certain you know components for the bath certain herbs or whatever he puts he's in charge of taking care of all of that it's so interesting it's so well done with the bath tokens coming down on strings and he has to take them off and then he has you know this giant wall of drawers with different herbs and different stuff that he could put in the baths and the giant furnaces are there, and he's cranking the wheel, and he's got his ashtray full of cigarettes. It's so interesting. It's so beautifully detailed and so gorgeous in the details of the art, but also in the in the animation. How his limbs could just stretch infinitely to get what he wants. It's gorgeous. It really is a it really is a set piece. It's just a gorgeous showpiece. And I love that he's sort of when San, Chihiro originally goes in to ask him for work that he sort of pushes her away, but then he sort of quickly becomes sort of a kindly old helper for her and sort of embraces her and says, okay, if you want to work here, then you got to go see Yubaba first and sort of helps her along. I mean, we have to, as far as helpers go, we have to start by talking about Haku because Haku is a, is the first person who who Chihiro, meet, Chihiro meets on her way and the first person to, or the first thing the first creature of some kind to help her, you know, a kind but mysterious young boy who has seemingly has these magical powers. And, you know, we, later we find out the ability to shapeshift into this serpent-like dragon. And, you know, like Chihiro encounters him very early on and he protects her and offers her guidance. Without him, she who, who knows what would have happened. But then Kamaji is sort of the second one to sort of take send under his wing and sort of help her out. Haku's an interesting character to me too, because I was reading into him maybe incorrectly, like for a little while, like he was a turncoat or something like that. Yeah. Was, you don't know with him or like, he's like so enslaved that he's like working on behalf of Yubaba without really knowing right. or whatever. So I was relieved when it all worked out. Cause I didn't know if he was going to end up being like one of her enemies as well, maybe involuntarily, but nonetheless, becoming a, a hindrance to her. I hear that. But he's an interesting character, too, because he looks so anime compared to everyone else in the movie that's a human or humanoid. He does. And I don't know, like, what, what the inter why that is, but it, it, he almost doesn't look right to me compared to everyone else. He doesn't look as stylized or as interesting, actually. I don't like that design. He has less of that European flavor right. that the other spirits and the witch and everything have. Yeah, he, that's interesting. I mean, the only thing I can think of with that is that it was this movie was intended. There was two intentions with this film. Two or three intentions. One was to base it on a young heroine that could be relatable to young, really young Japanese kids. The other one was to make an adventure film without relying on action, weapons, and battles, especially because Miyazaki was apparently going through a very anti-Iraqi war 
thing at this point. Well, he would. He would later on, but he was going through a very pacifist stage, which would later go on to his anti-Iraqi war stance and why he didn't pick up the Academy Award for this movie and everything. We could get into that later. But he was going through that whole thing where he, you know, he he's always, it's interesting about Miyazaki because he's, he's kind of anti-anime in that regard. He doesn't really, he doesn't really necessarily go in for the violence and the giant robots and the combat and all those other, those other themes that are typical to anime. And this was very important to them with this film, but also to create a romance with two young kids that wasn't really a romance. It was more of a friendship. So in order to have somebody, maybe, you know, to make him handsome and to make him feel like more of an anime, a typical anime romance that kids would identify through the manga that they read and stuff like that, that to keep him a little more something that would be, they would be a little more used to looking at. What about the use of computer graphics in this movie? I felt like there were moments of movement where you could kind of tell like where they were using at least computer aided technologies. And I'm wondering how you felt about that inclusion. I know that they were pretty keen on trying to get that into the movie for this and and for other movies as well, but I felt like it, you could tell, and I don't like that kind of stuff. We talked about that with Aladdin as well, that those, those things weren't seamless. Yeah. Like I don't understand why you needed why they needed to do that unless it was just to expedite the process of giving them what they wanted but i think right. it looks different it's it, it is identical to what we were talking about in the the, the desert nights in, in in aladdin where they're going to the cave or whatever of what whatever the hell it's called of wonders whatever the fuck they call it in that movie yeah, and yeah. it just doesn't look i'm like this doesn't look even good nonetheless right yeah pops which are two in different things way. actually no absolutely yeah. and it's funny to that you say that because that seamlessness or incorporating cgi in an elegant way was important to them and I think they, they failed a little bit in this movie. Now, they started incorporating CG into films, into their films, largely with some stuff that they did in the prior film in Princess Mononoke. Then in this film, they wanted to employ CG where they could, but again, they wanted to integrate it elegantly and make it just feel like it was part of the process and make it not stand out like a sore thumb. And the scenes that they used, I know they used soft image, which is interesting because that's a software that was already getting sort of old, that was already sort of aged at that point. But the ones that stand out to me, Kyle, I think they look cool, but they look like you're they look like you're cutting briefly to a different film. And I think you and I talked about this, where the where they're walking, Chihiro and Haku are walking through the fields of flowers. And it sort of takes that it's either shot from behind, like a tracking shot from behind, or sometimes you see it from the front. And it's a couple of different scenes in the movie. And you could see that the flowers are CG. They're going through this environment. There's a there's a great depth of field and a great perspective, but it looks CG. It doesn't look painted, hand painted like the rest of the film. Those those gorgeous hand painted backgrounds. You know that's one thing. But a lot of the backgrounds, and even the lighting, the camera, and the digital ink and there is some digital ink and paint. But even and the animation, a lot of it is hand drawn. A lot of this film is hand drawn. Most the majority is. But there are those things, there are those sequences that do stand out. And it was odd for me to hear that they were using soft homage in the late 90s, early 2000s, because that was already, that already seemed like it was really primitive for that time. Yeah, it's just jarring when you see stuff like that. If it's if it's integrated more into a picture, like you were talking about the, them going through the flowers, that's like the only thing you see in those few shots and those frames or whatever. So it's just, it's jarring. And then you go back to this traditional look and... Yeah, that's that a great too, point. That too is jarring. That's so, a great point. Actually. I don't really understand. I, I feel like 
I don't know. Simple is better. I mean, not that there's anything simple about hand drawing and hand painting everything, but we have to experiment. But don't experiment in your film, in your showcasing film. You know, do little experiments. Experiment by you know with a TV commercial or just a, like a pet project. You know, so you could eventually massage that and that look enough to incorporate into a film later on. But don't just throw it into a film. Right. That's yeah. I agree with you. That's odd. Dig, where do you want to go from here? What have we not? I mean, there's plenty we haven't discussed yet, but what what do you feel like is the next pertinent thing that we should bring up to the audience? I mean, probably just keeping to talk about the characters, I think, would be would be OK. We already went into Haku. We talked about Yubaba. Um, We could talk about Lin a little bit. She sure. Come, and, oh, of course, we talked about you very wisely brought up Kumaji already, the, the spirit that controls the boiler. So Lin would probably be the next the next character that we need, we need to talk about. Sure. All right. So I was a little confused by her because she seems human. She does. And I think she is human, but I guess she's also one of them. And it's not really, I, mean, I don't think it's clarified at all how she found her way there. You would assume that if what we were talking about earlier about kind of setting traps in this apparently abandoned place, that you would have found other people trapped in their own ways through this over time as well. But no one really gets into that. It's it's just confusing because it seemed like the only way for, for for salvation for Chihiro was to go find work at this place. In other words, like it wasn't even about escape at that point because I guess that there was no way for her to actually get away right. without some sort of permission. But yeah, I liked the um, I liked the Lin character because she seems immediately helpful and and is one of, seems to be one of the characters that you can you can trust. While we were talking about how. With Haku and others, we didn't really know what the nature of that of their involvement were. So, talk to me a little bit about Lynn. Yeah, I like her because she she does seem humanistic, and it's interesting because when you meet her, besides Haku, she's obviously the most humanoid. She's the most human like, but she is a little bit reluctant and cold and distant to Senna first. So that makes you feel a little like, oh, I thought this one was going to be. I thought she she would be the one to help, but she's a little hesitant at first. She's cajoled into helping. Sen by by Komaji and she's the one who takes her she's the character that takes Sen Chihiro to go visit Yubaba and I love that she's sort of the bridge and it is interesting that they keep her sort of you don't really know is she human is she not human she certainly looks human she certainly acts human she's got a very she's got sort of a the personality that you would think of a human she really contrasts with the rest of them she seems like she's above the rest of what's going on there in that insofar as that she's not taken by the greed. She's not begging for tips. She seems like and she she but also the interesting thing about her is she seems like she's been there long enough to know all the inner workings of how the place runs, how the place is laid out. So it does make you quite curious to know more of her story. You never really like you say you never really find out. And I love when she takes sent to Yubaba because and I love the whole thing with Yubaba is that you don't really know what her end is but it seems like the entire thing is a test like if if Sen and Chihiro just broke down and got dejected and said oh woe is me and I don't know how to help myself and my parents always did this kind of stuff for me I don't know how to face a challenge I'm just gonna sit here and cry and melt into a puddle then she may have been overtaken by Yubaba's magic and lost her name and became a permanent resident of that place. But what she does is she shows that what's so cool about the Chihiro character is she has that inner fire. She has something that says, 
give me give me a job, put me to work. And that tells you Baba, that's you know, that tells you Baba that this is somebody who's going to be hard to hard to enchant. That's going to be hard to capture. And you know, it's almost like that sends it's it's really cool because that's almost like Chihiro's own counter magic is her you know, sort of her ability to rise to the occasion, and that makes her strong. And Yubaba seems to thrive on the weak. So I always love that about it. It is interesting, yeah. She seems to know what to do, which is which is cool. It does represent this sort of conflict with the idea that her parents are absentee or weird or bad even. And like I noticed like she's she bows a lot and she seems to have respect for people and knows to take her shoes off at the appropriate time and all those kinds of things that I found I, I paid attention to that too because it showed like a, a little bit of a, a structured nature to Chihiro that maybe other people didn't have and, and so they succumbed to the enchantment like sure. you said. Yeah, absolutely. But I still you brought up like them begging for tips, the gold specifically with uh well what is the spirit's name? No no face? Yeah. And which I, I the voice for that cr- character is like so creepy. It is. But because like uh, Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's pretty good, dude. Uh, <laughs> You know, like that. I'm like, what the? Fuck? I thought he was here for a second. Holy moly! Really, really creepy. But he is. I always found it weird, like he, because he's basically manufacturing gold for them to collect, and everyone, like you said, is interested in tips and and finding little scraps of and nuggets of gold. But I, I was like wondering, like, for what? Like, what are you gonna do with it? Right. I, this is. I have so many questions about yes. this world. Where does that? Is there an economy? There must be an economy here or something. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It's it, a good point. Yeah, like why you? Why is that your whole thing? Is to get as much gold and get rich and beg for tips and where are you using it? Yeah, exactly. And you assume that all of these characters that are kind of human looking but not were once human. I assume so. Is it like the greed part of the greed that enchants them? Is that like part of the magic that keeps them there? And is that why Lynn doesn't look like them? Because that was the thing that I, I found really weird. The contrast between everyone freaking out that a human's there and they're looking for her and they can smell her and all that kind of stuff. But Lynn is a human, too. And I understand that they said and they kind of set up wisely in the exposition that she apparently, like, you know, eats their food and therefore doesn't kind of lost that 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 oral nature of, her, you know, that that smell or whatever that, right. that identifies her. But she didn't turn like a lot of the others did. And it's true. And there are others like her that, that in that room they, where they're all sleeping together and stuff. There, there's a lot of questions about the structure and the caste system in, in this place and what's going on and what they do. They seem to have autonomy and off time. They can see they're not being constantly watched or anything like that. Right. It seems like they voluntarily in some way show up to what they have to do. And that's a good point. A lot of interesting stuff in terms of what's going on in this very mysterious bathhouse in the spiritual plane. It is very mis- Now, Kyle, you should know too. Miyazaki, apparently this, the storyboards that he created for this film would have made for a three hour film as opposed to a two hour film. And they had to, that, you know, of course, the, a three-hour film would have not been sustainable. So for, for many ways, for production and for viewing audiences, especially children. So they had to cut that cut it whole hour out. So maybe, I like to think a lot of this stuff was answered. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, are there, did they ever, well, if they cut it out, they probably didn't animate it apart from animatics, maybe. So Right, exactly. So that it doesn't maybe even exist. Like, there's no script even. So, I mean, there's a script now, but there's no, there was no script to work off of. So No script. So they can't. Yeah, that's a good point. So they can't even maybe maybe there's a Bible for it or something that we were unaware of. And maybe it's just not important. I find it kind of important to understand a little bit more. I think that I would have enjoyed the movie more if I understood just a little bit more of the intent of how this world works. Yeah, I, I always love the machinations of 
Well, I always use The Walking Dead as an example. The Walking Dead is not interesting to me past the first couple seasons because, and I never read the graphic novel, but because it's about the people, which is fine, but it's not about the world or about what happened or about how it's solved or yeah. how it works or right. what's going on elsewhere. And that's the shit I'm always more interested in. I hear you on that. I don't know if that's just my my hunger for answers. And I'm a writer, so I, I like putting that stuff into my own writing. But also I understand keeping things mysterious. But I also find sometimes that's sort of storytelling really lazy because... Oh, it's it's up to your interpretation or whatever. And I'm like, if you don't really know as the creator, and I'm not saying that Miyazaki doesn't know, maybe he does, but if you don't know the answer, then it probably isn't that important or doesn't even maybe even belong in the film. So that's one way of put, looking at it. But if a, a third of it was cut out, then certainly we lost a lot of exposition, yeah. I would assume. Yes. But exposition that they felt, I guess, wasn't necessary. I will say, and I wrote this down with Chihiro's relationship or interactions with Yubaba, specifically when she signs her name over to her i get real ursula vibes out of that scene and mm. when she takes her name I like off that. the off the page and there's yeah. just i don't read japanese but i guess one of the syllables in you know that's where she gets her name or her given name there and they rename her sen and so i, I liked that parallel too although i don't know if anyone anyone else got that as well i love that and i love that haku takes not only sen's clothes her human clothes but also her card that i guess was attached to her flowers with her name on it to remind her what her name was. So she would never forget it and says, hide these. That, that was cool. That was a cool, clever little bit. So Chihiro, there's no danger in Chihiro ever forgetting her name. She has those things. Let's talk a little bit about some of the spirits we encounter that are pretty interesting. I love that. That turnip spirit is, <laughs> is awesome. Is really in cool. the elevator. Yeah. He moves like really slowly and just doesn't really seem to be all that interested in anything. And obviously we talked about the stink spirit, which I think is a really cool character. And of course, the no face character. Oh, so cool. Yeah. T- talk to me a little bit about these designs. He's and, become and an characters. icon. Yeah. You know, that that's one of those designs that's become so iconic. And just, again, just really haunting. I think maybe one of the most haunting pieces of imagery, imagery in any Ghibli film, in any animation, because it's very, very weird. And also, you have to understand. So when we first meet this thing, you know, it's basically this black mask mass almost like a black ghost with a white mask on his face almost like an old tribal mask simple tribal mask of some kind but he's an odd spirit who seems to be following sent around which is creepy because she's a little girl and who seems to be trying to earn the young girl's favor by granting her stuff so first he's trying to help her by giving her bath tokens that no one else will give her and then later on with gold and he just seems to be at first he's sort of stayed and he sort of seems even though he's He's disturbing to look at. He seems relatively harmless, but then it kind of plays out that he's like this tortured soul who eventually shows aggression to the various people and spirits and hostility to the bathhouse workers and even to Sen with that whole chase scene, which is a, which is so beautifully done. Eventually admitting, you know, we find out that he's lonely. He's saying that he's lonely because he doesn't talk for a while. So we don't know exactly what this thing. As you watch the film, it sort of plays out what this what this spirit could be. But, you know, I always took it as another spirit that was probably trapped there by, you know, but that was probably trapped there against his will somehow. But it's also very strange because he could create gold. He's obviously trying to, you know, he's obviously trying to buy friends which I always thought was an interesting comment on, you know, sort of greed. So what did you take away from 
uh, he's no face character. I found him nebulous. I wasn't really sure if he was good or bad. I guess that's the idea. There's a gradient and a grayness to him. But it is, first of all, an iconic character. And I didn't really ever know where that character came from. You can just tell by looking at him where he comes from, which is Ghibli. But I didn't know the context of that character. And I, I found him profoundly creepy for sure. I loved the voice. Like I just said, I think the voice is like really appropriate and, and strange. It's so creepy. But I just didn't understand like yeah what his nature was and what he was doing there and how he can kind of seem to create all this stuff which would give him some extraordinary power to maybe make his situation better so i i was and i was confused why he wasn't really a patron of the bathhouse or wasn't really welcome in there and because he kind of gets in through a door that that is left open for him so yeah i don't really know what what to make of him and i, I actually found the bath token thing really weird because i don't really know i'm not saying that in japanese bathhouses did they have tokens that they would send down to some six-armed man that would put these mysterious herbs into a boiler but is, does that come from something i don't know that's a great that's a great is that question. a thing you do at a japanese bathhouse like you give them a specific tab and then they know what to put into they your they know which thing to put yeah. in i that's a great question Kyle. i don't know when you were there now i know bathhouses are a big thing there this is supposed to be this is obviously hearkening back to a the spirit world is obviously set in a different time you know, it seems like it's not only a spirit world, but it's set back in the past. It's not a modern day bathhouse by any sense. But yeah, I'm curious about that too. You know, that's a that's a really interesting takeaway for that. I don't know. And No Face is always interesting to me because he seems he's so creepy that you're hoping that he's not a threat. And then later, when he start, you know, he st- starts to become this gelatinous black mass. And he starts to eat people, and he develops that giant mouth in his stomach and stuff. You, he, he actually becomes exactly what you hope he's not going to become. So it's nice to see the way he eventually ends up. That, you know, apparently this is just some tortured soul, some tortured spirit that wants to belong. And Zaniba actually, when they go visit her, and she's the kindly witch, Yubaba's twin, that he, she says, you could stay here with me and be my helper. So you know it ends well for No Face, which I always thought was kind of cool. He does just what he wanted. He just wanted a friend. He just wanted to belong. And Chihiro really had no reason for, you know, she was kind to him, but she had no, she, that's, it's, it's, that's what's interesting too. It's not really explained, like why, what was his fascination with Chihiro? Why was he following her around? Right. Maybe he thought that she was, susceptible to being tricked or to giving him what she wanted what he wanted or whatever right Right. Uh, she's a newcomer she's also the only one not acting like the rest of them where they're sort of groveling and begging for gold and maybe he saw her as like the more pure soul or something i don't know you know could could have gone that way too i don't know it's a there's a lot of i don't knows in this film (laughs) no there definitely is And Ryan Van Wingerden wrote into us. Hey, Ryan. He says, hey, fellows, uh, Spirited Away is an interesting movie, even for Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. Most of their movies have a more driving plot where Spirited Away is kind of freewheeling and abstract. I find that the film's themes revolve around a loss of innocence and the pain of growing up, but I would be willing to bet that there are other defensible takes on Spirited Away. The themes are communicated more through a feeling than the film is trying to cultivate and doesn't do to the doesn't do the audience to the audience the favor of spelling it out. Do you guys find the whimsical plot? of Spirited Away as a detractor or a strength. So this actually, I think, hinges on this particular character because I don't know that I find this movie strong based on its plot. It's strong because of the way it looks. I wish that they did. Do you find that the the whimsy adds to the movie? Because I find that the whimsy, there's always an appropriate level of whimsy in a story like this and in certainly in animated features. But yeah, 
I find that it gets a little too overboard with some of this stuff because I love to confuse it. I don't like it. It reminds me of what we say about Star Wars, which is like especially new Star Wars, where I don't want to watch a movie multiple times or have to read the fucking Tarkin book or whatever it is to, to know <laughs> right. what's going on. If the movie is there and this is supposed to be an encapsulated experience of two hours, then it's not to say that you need to answer everything or tell me everything or beat me over the head. But I think that there's a little too much mystery in this for me to be satisfied. Yes. I think that's a great way to put it, Kyle. I, I like the whimsy. I like doing something whimsical with a lot of wonder and maybe something that even crosses over into weird because it leaves so much room for just sheer, sheer creativity visually and in the story. And I love a show don't tell sensibility to something where you have to read into it or maybe gather your own, you know, gather your own conclusions and all that kind of stuff. But to a certain degree, I think we could have been I think we could have been given a little more just as far as data, just to, just so insofar as to interpret this world better. Just a little more for me. I like weird. I like I like wonder. I like the whimsy. But just give me a little more to hang my guesses on. I guess that's the nature of it. I guess that's why I was so attracted. I mean, we talked about it already, and I don't think there's many parallels between them. But again, with Attack on Titan, what was so interesting to me about it, what kept me watching was that, that they do go in to the war. They even like stop and show you like schematics and right. all these weird things and interstitial scenes. And I love that. I just think that that keeps people engaged and interesting and, and even asking more questions. You answer some of the questions they have. And so they're able to ask more complex questions now. Yeah. And I feel like that's the problem about with Spirited Away that I have is that it never allows me to get past that first step. So I can never really ask truly complex questions about it because we don't even really know, or at least I don't really know again, because I don't interpret it I haven't seen it enough to interpret it the way others have, and maybe I'm just missing it, but the you can't get to the second and third level if you can't even get past the first level of questions in terms of like, what is this? What's the nature of this? And then you can get deeper into understanding. Absolutely. So they, they never even really give you uh, just that 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 inch of knowledge that you might need to to start branching away from it. And so that's a little bit of a frustration for me. With yeah, you film. have nothing to build your guesses on. In some cases. Yeah, because yeah, you can, true. because if you started an embryonic state of like, all right, this is what I think and they don't really explain it. So this is what I think. And then you follow that through line. It could be totally wrong. It's totally unguided. So why even start really analyzing it? That's like an academic exercise that yeah. I don't really feel like I want to go through. You know, <laughs> right. That's fun sometimes. But dissertation style. Exactly. It's like this is it's like that 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 weird shining documentary room, whatever it's called, whatever right. the room is in the, I've seen in the it. hotel. It's interesting, but I'm like, I don't know, guys. Like, this is a little, I know Kubrick's like a, a nut job, but this is a little much. And even for him. Right. And when you have, and that's like another whole layer of weirdness because it's based on a Stephen King book and Stephen King hates the movie and it's not really true to the book. And so you have this whole other level of interpretation. It's really, it's and, really not. And then Stephen King went and did it again himself with like, you know, with a, I think it was a miniseries on TV and yeah, in the 90s, I believe. So it reminds me of that in the sense of like, well, Jesus Christ, we don't even know any of this is true. So why are we talking about the cans of corn in the background in the store case in The Shining? I mean, are you with the Indians on it? Right. Like, that type of thing. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so. I'm like, we don't know. We're, we're three. We don't have, we have three steps of answers we don't even have to get to that point. And right. so I guess what I'm saying is, is that Spirited Away just gives you so few morsels, ironically, because they give the parents so many morsels in the beginning of the movie. Oh, hey. But hey now. that that remains. And I mean, I've reiterated this, but that remains a frustration to me that really holds this movie back compared to my other. Ghibli yeah, that's an interesting take. I, I get that. I understand that. And maybe too, not knowing level five's involvement with Nino Kuni in terms of the story, but knowing, of course, that Ghibli was the art, the creative force behind the art in it. 
that was so attractive to me because maybe it was the best of both worlds where you had a studio that can in, in Ghibli that could create something beautiful and have someone like or a team like level five that can flesh the world out in an appropriate way. And maybe you need both of those things. And that's why you need scripts. And that's why you need to really think things through. But I mean, who am I to say who am I to really criticize this when this is largely and widely considered maybe the best Ghibli film and certainly the finan- most financially successful? I'm really surprised more people don't feel like you do because of its enormous success. You know, I know a lot of people both in the animation world and out that consider this the best Ghibli movie. So it is odd that I would I do find it personally odd that more people don't feel like that because I do feel like people like to have a little bit to hang their hat on as far as I I think what I think inherently what happens with something that's that's just too vague is that people feel left out. They feel left out of it. They feel like they're not getting it. They don't feel like they're an integral part of trying to figure out or an integral part of being someone, you know, even from a even from a viewership standpoint, someone who's just purely a viewer. If they can't figure it out, it makes them feel ostracized. So it is weird that so many people embrace this movie. Sometimes I feel like with this movie, and I hate to say it, sometimes I feel like people are just going along with the tide by saying they like this movie so much. Because I'm like, do you really like this movie so much? Because, you know, necessarily, you're not necessarily an animator, maybe, or you're not necessarily someone who's looking at all the eye candy. So that, it leaves me a little bit dubious. Yeah, okay. That I like can understand that. So. But I, I personally do love it. But I, you also have to understand how I'm approaching this film. I'm approaching this film you know, at least 50 or 60% from a purely visual standpoint, it's absolutely gorgeous. And I could go into that for hours, why I think it's so beautiful. Well, tell me. So I think that it's funny with this movie because I know Miyazaki sort of lashed out and he, he could be very he could be very hard to figure out. He's he could, temperamental, it seems like. And he could often say the opposite of what he means, I think, also. But he's lashed out at people that have said to him, like, oh, I love this scene. I love you showcasing this or making a set piece. And he would say, like, with films like I'm going to purposely not, you know, build in sequences that are obviously showcased or I'm going to purposely build in sequences that are not, you know, put the A team on these sequences and I'm going to make them really gorgeous and beautiful. He he has railed against that in his and people sort of picking apart his films. But there's so much of that in this movie. There's so many scenes that are showcased and beautiful. I have them both pointed here. But also just just in general with the effects animation for instance the waters and the liquids the way he animates the food falling off plates and the fire and the light and the ash and the fog and the mist and the rain and the glows from the lamps which are largely traditionally done and the mud and the slime all the detail and the reflections in you know the glass and in the water it's just gorgeous and there's a really really wonderful probably the best i've ever seen in animation a gorgeous use of light and shadow and atmosphere in this movie. Not just creating a shadow mat for a character in order to make it look like there's a light source in the room, but for that light source to change, for that shadow to change as the light sources change, and especially as the time of day changes and seeing the shadows grow as dusk, you know, dusk sort of sets in and all that kind of stuff. It's gorgeous. It's just absolutely gorgeous. It's it's so beautifully realized and crafted. It's amazing that they've they produced this film in two years. I have no idea how they would do something like that. I think it might even be less than two years, right? When I was I was reading the specific timeline. Yeah, like they, I, think I don't think be. they even greenlit it until early two thousand. So it's it was quick. And we it's so funny because we did an episode, this is not a Ghibli film, but we did an episode on Akira in which it was 
I think very different where it was a, it was a pretty difficult process to create it. You can't believe that they created it in the time they did, but they had more time and it was so beautifully done and maybe some corners were cut and you can tell some B team shit was going on in there. Right. Do you see any of that kind of stuff with the, like with the B unit or the C unit in terms in, of in spirit away? I don't see any of that. It's so interesting. I mean, you have really showcase scenes like we talked about earlier, the stink spirit where they're pulling, they're sort of pulling the junk out of him and they're pulling the bike out and there's a slide and there's metal rebar and just the amount of detail and the slime and the mud sort of playing off of everything. And I mean, that sequence alone could have taken two years to animate. It's it's just absolutely gorgeous. But that's an interesting point. Kyle. I don't see a lot of B teamy stuff in this. You see a lot of showcased scenes, but even the medium shot dialogue scenes and stuff like that, they're just gorgeous. They're just really, really beautiful. I mean, look at the dragon. Look at the scene Look where Haku in his dragon form is being pursued by those hundreds of paper dolls. It's just absolutely riveting stuff. I mean, I, I would say even I'm, I'm an animator and I know things from a technical perspective. I have a trained eye or whatever. This is what I do for a living. But also, I would I could I should I wish I should think people would appreciate that from a more layman standpoint as well. Just and how beautifully, beautifully done it is. Certainly, certainly. So, and I noticed a lot of the the shadows and the light. And I was I was interested in a lot of that stuff as well. It was cool. Not that I understand it from a technical perspective, but it, it looked great. Right. And uh, another aspect of the film that we have to, of course, talk to talk about is its soundtrack. And Brandon Hardman wrote into us on Patreon. He said, obligatory Ghibli music shout out. Joe Hisashi <laughs> once again creates an unrivaled composition for this movie. But I think the film's best track is Always With Me by Yumi Kimura. Are there any pieces of the soundtrack that stand out to you guys? I'm not much of a soundtrack delver. Right. Really? I'm just not. And well, I, I shouldn't say that. There's a difference between a soundtrack and a score. And you're really talking about you're, you're mentioning the soundtrack, which is not the score. Those are two different things. I think we're talking more about the score when we're talking about uh, Joe Hisashi. But I, I just reiterate what I said when we did our last Ghibli episode, which was it's so funny how inspired Japanese role playing game and Japanese action RPG composers are by this guy. Because I said earlier, I'm like, wow, this sounds and it looks like a Japanese role playing game, but it sounds and looks like what inspired Japanese role playing sure. games, I think. And that's what's so interesting about it. The, his, his his sonic aesthetic is so specific that it's it's remarkable, actually, to me. It is. Yeah. It's a real style. It's a real, and I, you know, I love the closing song. That closing song is so iconic. Um, but, you know, also the, the soundtrack, I think the soundtrack in this film works for me so well as any great soundtrack does because it recedes and doesn't get in the way where it needs to. And then it punctuates those moments, those key moments like it needs to. And it sort of rises to the surface and then fades to the back like you like you need a score to. It never gets in the way, and it's always there when you need it. And I think that's the that's the mark of a really good. And I'm sort of a layman when it comes to talking to music, talking about music. But for me, that's what always makes a soundtrack in a film really work so well. But the closing song, that always with me song. I mean, that's one of the most iconic songs in film, I would say, and especially in in animated film. It's I mean that's a that's a famous song at this point. It's, that's what that's an earworm of a song too isn't it it just yeah, gets right in your head absolutely i'm also interested in kind of going into this joe pegler wrote into us and said greetings hey, Moriarty brothers hey as always thank you for the excellent work you guys do and helping provide me entertainment while i am mowing my grass every week you're very welcome you're welcome my friend this is just a psa if you have children under the age of seven i wouldn't try and watch this movie with them 
I recently tried to watch this with my four-year-old son and three-year-old daughter. We had successfully watched Kiki's delivery service with no issues. Unfortunately, this was a bad idea. About halfway through the movie, my daughter would not come out from under her blanket and my son would not stop clenching his stuffed animal. Oh, they were scared. Yeah, my wife finally pulled the plug on the movie night and has now removed my right to pick up any upcoming movies. I'll now be stuck watching movies ranging from Barbie's Super Vacation to Ice Age 17, both of which I find much more frightening. And actually, I wanted to ask you about this because you have kids. They're older than that. But did you show them this movie and did they did they like it? Because I feel like it's so weird that it's either going to appeal to you in a total visual way as a child or it's going to just be this boring mess to you. Because when you think when I think about the iconic cartoons from my childhood, like Land Before Time or All Dogs Go to Heaven or whatever, they have cogent stories. I mean, like you understand. Yeah. What's going on in them? Right. If I were to watch this movie, this movie wasn't available when I was a kid. It, it wasn't out yet, but I feel like I wouldn't have liked this movie because I would have been like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, even the even the weird shit that I love, like Labyrinth had, which Labyrinth is wild. I mean, that when you really think about that movie, and that's another movie I can't believe I haven't It's talked. a weird one. But that you don't movie, have to do that. that movie, that's like one of my favorite movies as a kid and really inspired me as a kid very much uh, creatively, I think. And it, but it has a, it has a reason of being right. Like I understood it as a child. I understood what it was about very right. early and understood the, the themes. And there's a bad guy. And a yeah, good and guy. A ba- yeah, right. But it's also about it's also about being a shitty daughter and a shitty sister and all those guys. And I understood that and greedy and selfish. You kind of th- those kinds of things shine through. So I can kind of understand this not only being a frightening movie to kids, but also just a confusing and befuddling movie for a kid. So I'm wondering what your children thought of it. Well, my kids are huge Ghibli fans in general. For, was this Joe? The last yep, uh, Joe Pagler. Joe, I think I think you should be given another chance for movie night. Tell your wife I told you I told told you guys. Let her know. listen to this. And let definitely and definitely let her listen to the Mad Libs section in the beginning Please, of it. She'll that enjoy will really that. convince her. <laughs> but you know what, Kyle? My kids think this movie, this specific we're huge Ghibli fans. Let me remind you, our dog is named after Kiki's delivery service. So we're a Ghibli family. But my kids have their favorite Ghibli films. They both think this film is boring. I have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. They both never got all the way through this movie. I think I probably showed some of the first time. I want it to be reasonable because it is a, a little more heady than some Ghibli movies. But I think I showed it to them probably for the first time like a year, a year and a half ago. And they were both like, this is really boring. Can we watch something else? Maybe they got like a half. So that was there. Maybe they got like a half hour in or something. That was their takeaway from this film. My son's favorite movie, though, for favorite Ghibli film is Howl's Moving Castle, which I would argue is almost as strange as this movie. It may be stranger in some ways. So what's up with that? There's more action in it and it's funnier. So there might be that. But going for it for a nine year old. And my daughter, my daughter doesn't really. She likes everything. She likes, she's pretty, she's pretty open-minded. She likes Ghibli. She likes Star Wars. She likes Disney. She likes Pixar. She feels like she's getting too old for stuff. But this was the first film where she was like, ah, this is really sort of boring. She yeah, did that with Star Wars too, A New Hope. She's into manga too. And she's I, into I, manga, yeah. Which is interesting. I bought, yeah. I bought her some. Last Christmas. Yeah. And uh, no idea what was going on in those books, but, <laughs> but I'm glad she, I'm glad she enjoys them. I only have like a few. I have some Mega Man manga and like Dragon Quest manga. You bought me my first manga, Dragon Quest manga actually back way back that. in the day. I remember that, dude. which was so cool. 
Dig, we also have a question here okay. about its availability. Colin Stackowitz wrote hey, in Colin, us another what's Colin. What's up, man? He says, Hey guys, why can't you purchase Studio Ghibli movies and digitally anywhere? Any info y'all have on this would be appreciated. Can we expect these on Disney Plus? Yes. I would assume so. Yeah. Because we encountered this problem the last time we did Ghibli. I did, Dagan didn't, because he has all the hard copies. I'm just really not into having hard copies of anything. So and actually gave Dagan all of my Seven, I sent Dagan a 70 pound box full of video games, which I'm sure his wife was just thrilled <laughs> arrived at the house for them to go through just a bunch of more crap uh, to put into the collection, into our combined collection. But yeah, you assume that these are going to be on Disney Plus and that they're holding them out, right? Because Disney has the publishing rights. to these. Yeah, I would think so. They have the North American distribution rights that goes for digital as well. So the only thing that, you know, but also if you really want something, if you really want a disc and you're a, you know, traditional media type of guy, you want to have something tangible in your hand and just go on eBay and Amazon, you might have to pay a little bit more for it, but you won't have to pay too much more for it on Amazon. They have so many, especially Amazon, they have so many inroads into getting stuff. It's weird. They have warehouses full of, you know, spirited away Blu-rays. You just have to know where to find them. So go to the Amazon. Jason Bull asked a question. So this is a strange one for me as growing up, I remember seeing the ads before various Disney VHSs, but I didn't realize it had any connection to my soul Ghibli experience, Totoro, which we did our episode on. Right. It wasn't until 2004 that I actually watched it and absolutely fell in love. The runtime always feels like a brisk 30 minutes despite being fairly long. I disagree with you there. Actually. Yeah, I disagree with that. What are your thoughts on this being the Ghibli film that won an Oscar? Well-deserved or would you give it to another in the library? Mm. I actually find it's it's that a little befuddling considering some of the other Ghibli movies. Now, I'm a Mononoke fan, as we said early, earlier, beautiful. and that, that to me seems like that to me might be the most stunning in my very limited experience, the most stunning animated film I've ever seen from a visual standpoint. And the storytelling in it is awesome and the characters are great. But yeah. Do you find it weird that Spirited Away won an Academy Award? And what what happened with this Academy Award? There's like a story about this Academy Award, isn't there, in terms of... He wouldn't pick it up. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about this. So Miyazaki was protesting. I guess he was fiercely opposed to the Iraqi war, and he was angry about it. And when this movie won an Academy Award, he didn't acknowledge it, or he wasn't there to pick it up, I guess, apparently, or whatever. But... It's interesting to take that out on Hollywood, which is profoundly anti-war. Yeah. That is pretty. Typically. That I mean, is pretty. To, that is true. That going is back pretty to strange. Korea, you know, at least. But I mean, you would see like something like Princess Mononoke, which we haven't done yet, which we're really looking forward to doing. That might be one of those holdouts because Colin and I are both really passionate about that film. Yeah, Dagan and I, by the way, we're kidding around. Did we do it on the air or do we not do it on the air? I where, think we've talked about it before. Like we're gonna, like we were there, just certain movies we're just never gonna do. Yeah, and or, certain pieces of media. Yeah, we're just never gonna do them. Final Fantasy we'll, Six. Yeah, well, I think I don't know if we were. Yeah, like Final Fantasy Six and Seven. Seven. A New Hope. New hope. Certain like you'll probably never see episodes for those because we're just <laughs> we're gonna just hold gonna hold them out forever. Possible. Yeah, until you guys get until you guys start walking away, then we'll say come back. We're gonna do this now or vote for them, of course. Okay. Although I find you guys voting for a lot of stuff we would have done anyway. I don't think you guys are being clever enough with your votes. I gotta oh, be you're ch- I'm challenge. challenging you. It's a challenge. Challenge. <laughs> oh God, we're gonna get some crazy ones now. <laughs> but you know, I call like Mononoke. It is very linear storytelling. I think that movie is. A, in particular very interesting because it has a decisive hero it has some grayness with the bad guys but it's also very interesting the story is very interesting and again it's very it's very linear storytelling and extremely there's a lot of that that movies has a really big gravitational pull but i could see giving spirited away the oscar just based purely on its artistic merit it's absolutely gorgeous 
I mean, it, not only that, but it holds up so well. It's, you're talking about a movie that's 20 years old almost now. It's absolutely gorgeous to look at. I mean, it's a, it's an, it's a, a feat of animation, art and animation. It's just absolutely beautiful. I could see people saying, well, I don't know. It's weird. And the story, is the story being so dubious and not really committing itself to a certain story or being so open to interpretation? Does that actually help it? Because you could already go in with the sensibility of saying, well, I must be missing something here with the story. You know, I the story must be really great if everybody loves it so much and just kind of leaving it at that. Right. It's almost a cheat, but it's just so visually, it's so beautiful. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know. I don't have, I don't presume, I'm an expert with video games. I consider myself a, a video game expert. Oh, for sure. With this stuff, I'm really just walking on by a lot of the time so i'm not gonna like put forth that i don't know what products came out in 2002 2003 that would have even rivaled it it's entirely possible that spirited away stood out right because there just wasn't any actually in knowing what i know about disney and in knowing what i know about some other animated f- features and stuff i feel like that's actually a bit of a dead zone so that might be a reason why spirited away even won. Now, i'm not trying to take away the ghibli's sure no you're but right what, about you that. have to think about mononoke would have gone up against like Pocahontas or something like that. Or, oh, you know that's what I mean? a good point. Like, or, yeah, like what was it going up against? Or Hercules or something, or Milan, something in that era, a little yeah. before that. Yeah, that's, a, that's around the same time. So a little more staunch competition. I mean, when you talk about the turn of the century, you're talking about like Emperor's New Groove. And I know you like that movie a lot, but it, it was those were not like behemoth Disney films. No, they didn't the imagination. super well. Right. So maybe they managed to sneak it, sneak one past the goalie that way. And, you know, and again, I'm not trying to take away from Ghibli's. No, not at all. That could be a, that's a great point. I mean, that could be definitely be part of it. And it's a dickhead move to not go pick up your Academy Award. <laughs> uh, I mean, award. I, I think I think it's a, that's a dickhead move to not to not do that. I mean, the Hollywood is not the American government. And I don't know. I find that a little strange. Yeah, it seems a little ignorant. He doesn't sound like a very likable man, to be honest. And in, in the stories that I've heard, very, you know, maybe maybe very similar to me where you're a little just disgruntled all the time and you're annoyed. <laughs> right. I, I right, get it. Right. You're yeah, not. he seems kind of yeah, he seems like kind of an ornery dude. I guess that's not getting any better as it gets as he gets older. <laughs> well, he's come in and out of retirement a couple times, right? He and has. He has indeed. He can't stay away. So, Dig, is there anything left unsaid before we wrap up this episode that you wanted to get into? Um, no, I mean, I guess we should just talk about the ending. I wanted okay. to know how you felt about the ending. Yeah, I was a little confused. Well, I guess that's the idea. I mean, did m- much time passed, I guess, when they were in there, right? There was some sort of time dilation yeah. some, in some way. Yeah, a little bit. The parents don't seem confused by it. I mean, it seems substantial based on where they find their car and stuff like that. It seems like years have passed. Uh, you don't get that's that? That's interesting in, you don't, how you don't much interpret- time has passed. I never thought about how much time I mean, it passed. seems like a lot of time had passed. Because like, there's the dust on the car and the leaves on the car. Yeah, it just seemed, I mean, it seemed to me that that's not something that happens even in a month. right. That's interesting. I don't know how much time elapsed. I never really. They never say. It. They never say. They also don't seem that concerned about it. They leave it completely open to to appreciate. The only thing I know that Miyazaki has said in the ending is that it's not a dream. This was not. This is something that did really happen. He wanted people to know that. And I think the hairband, that glittery hairband that Zaniba gives to Sen, is one of those clues at the end because Sen is wearing. That. Oh, interesting. But, oh, okay. So it's not, it wasn't a dream or a fantasy. This is something that really happened. But also the thing to realize was that no one, re- the parents don't remember. No one remembers it. So it was almost, to them, it was almost like no time elapsed. Chihiro doesn't remember it either? No, I think Chihiro probably, I don't know what he said about Chihiro, actually. Maybe no, maybe no, none of them remember it. I'm not sure. But the parents don't remember it for sure. 
And the only clue that they would have that time had elapsed, because when they when she comes back, they're like, "Oh, where have you been? We've been waiting for you." When they go back to the car and it's covered with dust and leaves, I don't know if they would think that was odd. You would think so. But I like the fact that it's delineated that it's it what in fact at least that part is not open to interpretation. That it was not a fantasy. This is something that really happened. And that to me that's nice because that adds to what I really take out of the film, which is that growing up, that story of growing up. You know, having to mature basically not even growing up, but having to mature, just developing that cope developing a sense of coping, or like a coping mechanism for somebody who never had to do that before. And how that would help Chihiro in her new town and in her new school and not be so coddled. I, I dig that. I, I like that a lot. Well, I like right, the ending. Yeah, the ending's cool. I like it being a little bit open into interpretation. I wonder if the parents didn't seem that confused about the car being covered and all that stuff and time seeming to have, have elapsed, then maybe I'm over-interpreting it. But I would love the idea of them driving away and finding a, a situation that is unrecognizable to them where they've just been gone for years or something like that. Right. It'd be pretty interesting. Right, right, right. But... That'll be for the sequel, Spirited Away 2. I'm surprised, I haven't, done surprised I haven't done it yet, Kyle. I'm trying to see here, because I'm really you got me really curious in this, and I don't know why I never I haven't investigated this earlier. What Spirited Away went up against. Oh, okay. So I think I got it now. Okay, so what So it's it went up against, if I'm not mistaken. Hold on, I think there's one more that I don't know. Alright, so it looks like Kyle. Spirited Away went against Lilo and Stitch for best animated feature. It went against Lilo and Stitch, Ice Age, mm. Blue Skies Ice Age, Spirit, which was a DreamWorks film, I believe, and Disney's Treasure Planet. Oh, okay, interesting. So yeah, it kind of was a little bit of, a little bit of a dark zone. Ice Age is still a pretty prominent franchise today, but Yeah, but all but the, you know what the weird thing is? Fox is owned by Disney. Yes. So now Ice Age is Disney's. Yeah, it's How weird is that? It's really strange. I don't like I don't like the more Disney exists, the more I don't like them, to be perfectly honest. I don't know where, how that worked out for Blue Sky. I should know that. And I, I keep meaning to investigate that because Blue Sky is, a, is is in Connecticut. That animation studio is in Southern Connecticut. So, you know, he, helmed by, famously helmed by Chris Wedge, the director. And I think I guess he's the CCO there. So I always wondered how, you know, because they, not that Blue Sky was really competing on any kind of super competitive level with Disney ever, I hate to say it. But now that Disney owns them, what does that mean? You know, they were a major competitor. With, they were a competitor for Pixar, too. Right. So, yeah, it's strange. It's very incestuous. I don't I'm not crazy about it personally, but what do I know? <laughs> uh, Dig, let's meander away. Let's do it, my friend. Let's, let's spirit ourselves. Oh, away. We'll beat you to I it. I see what you did. Just there. by a millisecond. I see what you did. There. Let's go into our closing commentary before we uh, exit. We have two closing segments that we want to go into this wave. OK, so I'll throw it over to you. Let's do it, my friend. Riddle me this. We haven't solved a single riddle yet. No, and I probably won't. I mean, I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to solve it. <laughs> but maybe we'll be surprised. Oh, this is an interesting one. I haven't seen this one, so I certainly didn't see the answer for this one. Let's try this one. Okay. Three lives have I. Gentle enough to soothe the skin. Light enough to caress the sky. Hard enough to crack the rocks. <laughs> what is it, Water? Three lives I've had. Oh, oh like water, right? Maybe like, it can, but maybe it is. I'm going to, what's, it is. Dude, you got it. You nailed it. Nice. That was, well, that was, I felt that was a little easy. You felt that one fast. Wait, yeah. light enough to caress the sky? How the hell did you get that? 
Well, it comes from the sky. Gentle. Oh, light enough to caress the sky because it comes from the sky. Okay, hard enough to crack the rocks. Okay, because of erosion and whatnot. Wow, that's that was pretty good. I don't feel like that one was too easy. Well, I got it. I think you're just getting better at this. Well, there we go. I'm on base. There so, you go. You got a riddle. Very good. You're one for five or six. What is one it? for five now? One for five. Okay. Yeah. That, well, it's not, not terrible. It's not terrible. It's not, terrible. It's not a terrible day at the at the uh, ballpark. Let us take you guys out. Let us caress the sky <laughs> with a dad joke. Please. Let's find a good one for us, Kyle, tonight. Let's find a good one. Oh, I already did that one. I didn't exit out. I almost read one twice. That's a that, that would have been embarrassing. That would be a faux pas. A faux pas. A folks pause. <laughs> Fox pause. All right. Let's see. I should have had this ready for you guys, but I'm looking. Let me look. Let me look. See if I can find one. Shh, that's not a good one, Kyle. I don't know. Should I just just say it then? Should I just for God's sake? Okay, okay. I don't think I read this one yet. I don't think I read you. You remind me if I read this one before, Kyle. Okay. I didn't read, read. Certainly didn't read it in this in this wave. But Kyle, what did the ocean say to the shore? Something about waving. <laughs> yes, nothing. It just waves. <laughs> I'm curious if I read that one in a past. No, I, I, I don't. That, I, I don't. That one's not familiar to me. I don't know that. I didn't know that answer. That just sounded obvious. To okay. Me. All right. Good. I feel relieved. That, that wasn't very good. Carl. Yeah. Where did the one-legged waitress work? Something about hopping. It's IHOP. IHOP. You're getting good at this. <laughs> You're getting good at this. You're kind of ruining my kind dad of, jokes. I'm ruining it a little bit now. A little bit. I'm really clued in right now. <laughs> I'm having a really good day. You're sharp. You're sharp. Well, Dig, that's all we have for Spirited Away. As we said, you'll have to wait for Disney Plus probably if you want to get it digitally. There's not even an option to buy it on Amazon for the extraordinary price that I paid for, say, Aladdin. Right. So you'll have to wait. But by the time this goes live, Disney Plus will be about out. So you can go there. And of course, as Dagan said, there are Blu-rays and DVDs and even VHSs available for this, I believe. So wow. you can go find if you want. Because they were making VHSs until the middle of the aughts, I think. Yeah, this came out on VHS for sure. So yeah, go check it out if you haven't seen it. But we hope that if you've gotten this far, you did see it and we appreciate you guys hanging out with us today to talk a little bit about spirited away that was an un, that was i didn't mean to speak oh. in verse there i didn't mean to speak in verse there <laughs> it's like a, a fucking limerick <laughs> you really are sharp holy shit you're sharp today my god it's like when george costanda stopped having having sex and he's just real clued <laughs> in and everything of course absolute zero <laughs> all right dig well i appreciate you yeah thank you very much thank you guys too yeah, thank you out all out there for supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access and your ability to submit inquiries. And by the way, I'm sorry that we're not able to read more of your inquiries. We're getting so many submissions now that I really do have to carve away a bunch of them uh, because the show is getting so big. So that's a good thing we're for so us, but, but maybe a bad thing for you. I don't know. <laughs> but nonetheless, we appreciate your love and your kindness. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom.
Chris Adams, Carlos Algarit, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Adam Barnes, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Eric R. Brown, Jason Budnick, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Nick C., Alex Cabrera, Patrick Harper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Nick Cottrell, Philip Crone, Daniel D'Amore, Colin Davenport, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Liam Fagan, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Shane Hendrickson, Wyan Henry, Robbie Hensley, Scott Hernandez, Asa Haas, Johnny Humphreys, Stephen Insler, Blake Israel, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Garrett Jaggard, Joshua Jonathan, Paul Joyce, Greg Juleps, Anton Kay, Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lostaqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Matthew Lenz, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M, Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Ross Maranka, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, Jordan Mouse, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Andrew Mendoza, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymouth, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan R., Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Daniel Rivas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Jose Salinas, John Scholes, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Alex Schutt, Glennon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Shane St. Pierre, Ahmad Tamar, Will Thielander, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Trembley, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Troy Walters, Connor Walton, Isaac Wasteman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, David Wright, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Bloody Fang, Organic Produce, Casual Misfit. Gaming, Homeworld Hub, Mason, Throw7, McDog18, Infinite, Mad Mock Media, Not Your Real Dad, Mubarak, Chris, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, and Rainick. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. <laughs> I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.